0: Are those rhymes? Are those actual things? Well they did rhyme. <laughs> Sorry, now now I'm having the the it jumped out of the sewer <laughs> great moment. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz, and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100. It's Matt Morgan.
1: I realized the other day, dogs cannot operate MRI machines, but cats can.
0: Unfortunately, I feel like someone's going to end up using that as a uh, sort of a definitive piece in an argument between cats and dogs. But um, I'm still going to be a pupper guy through and through. 100%. I hope that you will be too, Matt. Of course. Next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach.
2: Yeah, the, um, once again, the, the Matt dad joke kind of for me, I don't know what to say. Well played, Dr. Morgan. We can't, we can't keep complimenting
0: his dad jokes here, Matt. It'll, it'll inflate his ego a little bit too much, and then he'll keep doing them, and that would be a nightmare.
1: I'm gonna keep doing them till the end of 2019, whether you like it or not, Joey.
0: I'm sure it will go long past 2019. And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at edhrec.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC itself is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on the podcast, we like to give all that data a little more context. What is our topic this week, fellas?
2: We're going to talk unintended consequences of some Commanders.
0: That is right. There are plenty of commanders out there that were specifically designed for a certain strategy, but once folks start actually tuning up those decks, they might find that they slip into an entirely different strategy altogether. So that'll be a really fun topic, but before we get there, I have to ask Have you guys built any new decks, played any fun games? How has it been in your commander week?
1: My commander week is pretty fun, actually. So the last two games that I play with Taysa Karlov, I am two for two in winning with Revel in Riches, and it is awesome.
0: That is a darn good card.
1: Oh, I love it. It's so good. And like, you don't even need to tutor for it. You can draw it at nearly any point in the game and you almost always are going to get just an obscene amount of value out of it. Uh, I, I sat down to play and we had that, that discussion that I, we've talked about a few times, how everybody kind of starts talking about power levels. What kind of decks are you playing? One guy said, well, I have some pretty good decks. But I only really ever play with my buddies. I've never played at a shop before, so I'm, I'm not really sure. Okay, that's fair. You know, I'll play my Tesa Karlov deck. It, you know, it's it's good, but it's not going to, you know, combo out. It's not going to blow people away. And two other people whipped out a uh, Momir Vig, Eldra, or Elf Storm, CEDH deck. Another person out, pulled out a very competitive Marith deck. So I kind of, all right. That's what we're in for tonight, and so it was really fun when I drew, you know, turn ten, drew a Revel and Riches, somebody board wiped, and then passed the turn to me, and I won. And the two guys that were playing the competitive decks kind of, you could tell they didn't. Enjoy losing to a five-man enchantment at all.
0: <laughs> that is such a really cool interaction too, since Tesa is going to double the death triggers, and Revel and Riches is going to give you two treasures whenever your opponent's stuff dies. Mm-hmm. Don't board wipe when Matt's got a Revel and Riches in play, people. You're just asking for disaster. It,
1: it was actually the one of the players. He bounced it in um, at the end step before it went to me, so I just replayed it and just hoped nobody had an answer, which they didn't. So. I basically got through two turn cycles with it out there, and so it was. I felt really good. It was a fun game, actually. We, we ended up having a really good time, but yeah, it was. Winning with Revel and Riches is just kind of one of those like mission accomplished, achievement unlocked type of things. Like winning with Miles Aria, it's one of those types of just status
2: symbols. Well, the, the, <laughs> the kind of beauty of Revel and Riches too is it's not a dead card all on its own. Like not that right. not that Helix Pentacle isn't a good card, but it doesn't do anything all on its own. If you put Revel Riches, there are times when you're like just content with having the treasures it makes.
1: Mm-hmm. Especially like when a... we're, yeah, especially when you're playing a, a, an Orzhov deck, yeah. it doesn't ramp terribly great. But and one of the things we talked about last week is White doesn't have great ramp options. Well, Revel and Riches is it's a decent ramp option if we're you know stalling the game and going late. Yeah,
2: for sure
0: very very useful card for sure speaking of black actually i wanted to let you guys know that the mono black deck that i had built Kyrick, well it is no more but i have found a new replacement commander for it uh-huh. i have decided to go with graven predator captain the guy who sacrifices your creatures makes you lose life draws you a bunch of cards what i wanted in Kyrick was a commander lets me play with my life total and use it as a resource and graven has turned out to be the commander that i was looking for instead and uh Man, I suppose if I were to sit down and have a talk with people about that thing's power level, I mean, no, it's no CEDH commander, but it is certainly more powerful than I expected it to be. It can easily be the case that I am cutting my own life total in half when Graven attacks, and then just slamming someone out with the very first attack of the game that I make. That thing has really, really surprised me.
2: Are you running the uh, new uh, Castle lockpoint in that deck?
0: No, I still don't particularly like that card, but I also don't know that I felt like I needed it. I tell you what, though, Dana, I am running one of your favorite cards, Hatred. Oh, nice. Because it both features Graven in the art, and it allows me to pay life to pump him, which then pumps him twice. So that's been a really, really fun one. But yeah, just a bunch of little cards like that will suddenly, out of nowhere, just give me a bunch of extra combat tricks that totally slam someone to death. It's been a real treat to play. Even when I'm attacking with him and then I sacrifice a creature and draw five cards, I might accidentally stumble into a card that makes him lethal when I didn't expect him to be. That's been a lot of fun. I've got one more story that I'd like to share with you guys too about a game that I played recently. I was playing Marin, as I love to do, plenty of creatures in my graveyard, and then my friend Paul, if he shall be my friend anymore, he, how dare he, he played a Relic of Progenitus which Mm. threatened my graveyard the entire game. And basically what he did was decide to turn me into his puppet because at any moment, if I tried to do anything, he would just exile my entire graveyard and leave me completely wrecked. So basically he led me around on a leash and made me do his bidding just on the off chance that I'd be able to keep my graveyard. It was a very, very dastardly play, but here's the real kicker about it. I thought that I had found a way to get around it because I was holding a Twilight's Call in my hand, which as you'll remember, brings all creatures in play back from the graveyard, and you can pay extra mana to cast it at instant speed. So I thought that maybe I would try and be a little tricksy, use some type of sorcery speed, maybe an animate dead or a victimized sort of effect to do something that Paul would then use his Relic of Progenitus on, then instantly play the Twilight's Call to get all the creatures back while the Relic of Progenitus trigger was on the stack. I tried pulling that off when I finally got enough mana, but that jerk had the audacity to also have a Containment Priest in his hand, which he then snuck into play, <laughs> and then ruined my entire strategy and exiled my entire graveyard. So I went from being a puppet to being nothing at all. He's a tricksy, tricksy devil. He handedly destroyed me that game. It was a lot of fun to try and get around, even though I didn't quite clinch
1: it. Paul, just so you know, the next time we meet up, I'm going to buy you an ice cream. Nice
2: job. (laughs) I'm so proud
0: dana anything fun to report for you has that mono red deck uh that you were working on going
2: i have finally folded um my mono red deck i have not entirely figured out what way i'm going to go with it if i'm going to try to turn it into the um is it uh combat based deck or if i want to try something else i don't entirely know yet but that experiment has ended mostly because of the way i was trying to build the deck didn't quite work so Um, I gave it a go. didn't quite happen. I need to move on to something else. I have a few possible brews. I'm going to get one of them probably into place in the next few weeks, and I can report back then once it's up and running.
0: All right. You'll have to let us know what happens as soon as that experiment gets back underway. Let's move now to our main topic. We're going to be talking about those commanders with unintended strategies. These are commanders who were pretty clearly designed with a specific goal in mind. Say they were designed to use tokens or to be built around enchantments or to use landfall or something like that. But as it turns out, once you begin tuning up the deck, the thing that their deck is best at ends up being some completely different thing altogether. And those are the commanders that we wanted to look at today, because it could be a good way for you to evaluate your own decks and see what their strategies are. Or when you're playing against someone else, it can be a good way to know what to actually expect to build about that commander, because it might look like it's doing one thing, but secretly be doing another once that deck has been tuned up. Let's get to it. What is our first topic, our first commander that we're going to talk about? Dana, I'm going to pass it off to you.
2: The first one we'll discuss here is Angie Falconrath, Joey's buddy.
0: (laughs) Miss Angie. That's the madness lady.
2: You bet. The goal is as a madness discard outlet. um, The actual strategy, for the most part, though, winds up being World Gorge Dragon. (laughs)
0: <laughs> I mean, basically, yeah. Angie Falconrath, as everyone will remember, that's the Haste Vampire. You can tap her to discard a card and draw a card, and whenever you discard a card with Madness, you'll untap Angie Falconrath. That's really cool for a bunch of Madness stuff, but that doesn't seem to be what people are actually doing. Once folks start tuning up the deck, they start using those Madness cards not to cast them, but just to draw as quickly through the deck as they can to get to that combo. What is that combo? How does it work, by the way?
2: It's with Animate Dead, I believe, and I think it also works with Necromancy, and the way it works is when you cast one of those two spells and hit the World Garger Dragon, it comes into play and then exiles all of their permanents, and you can essentially infinitely blink because then the Animate Dead falls off, it goes back to the graveyard, and Dead comes back into play, in which case you put it back on World Garger, you get kind of an infinite loop going of blinking World Garger and anything you have out repeatedly back and forth into the graveyard and back um or in exile back excuse me so basically you tend to win with something like impact tremors or perforalis. you just get infinite triggers
0: yeah there's even a land i think it's called piranha marsh and when it enters the battlefield it'll have one player lose one life yeah well if the animate dead and world gorger dragon is constantly flipping in and out of play that many times that piranha marsh will get to ping everyone for one all across the entire table and that just turns out to be what folks are doing a bit more than actual badness stuff, fifty-three percent of decks are running World Gordon Dragon and combo under the Commander Angie Falconrath. That's crazy.
1: Yeah, it's it's a very, very high percentage for something that, you know, qualifies as a win condition. One thing I think I've noticed is that a lot of the win conditions, there's always a few that kind of stand out in certain colors. And they're they're always played at a very high percentage, stuff like Avenger of Zendikar or Crater Hoof Behemoth in green, for example. So seeing over 50% of decks play World Gorger Dragon is pretty insane, actually. It's the one thing that I think we need to point out is that's a, a, a huge percentage for something that it's basically an infinite combo that you can do pretty quickly in an Angie deck.
0: Yeah, I mean, they're not using those Madness spells to actually gas them. They're just using them Mm -hmm. to filter through 50% of their deck just to find those cards. And one of the important things is that World Gorgeous Dragon needs to be in the graveyard for this combo to start. Well, Angie helps you discard them, so it ends up being a perfect fit for sure. Once you start tuning up that deck, this ends up being one of the strategies that people default to, and it's definitely very powerful.
2: One thing I think we probably should talk about just in general before we get much further into this is a lot of the stuff, I I would guess, they... Don't, they didn't particularly know when the card was designed that it would go this way, and the reality is the players are going to test out these cards, you know, an hour after they're released more frequently than development had time to test them during their entirety. Like the sheer amount of people playing these decks are going to do things within minutes at a level that that they just aren't able to do, you know, because of the manpower limitations that was of the Coast. Mm-hmm. So so while some of these are definitely, you know, like quote-unquote mistakes, like, I don't know how you get around having this kind of thing occur, short of having, you know, 10,000 people on staff at Watsi.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think that's <laughs> right. a really good point to make is, and we have to remember, you know, Scott Larrabee, who's on the rules committee for the commander format, uh, he's in the Wizards of the Coast office. He he works for Wizards, so he always talks about designing cards. And I'm pretty sure that it, you know if the the rules committee has a philosophy document saying, you know, we think it's more fun if you don't try to break cards and break the format. If somebody has that, you know, they're part of that rules committee. They're probably going to have that philosophy spill into Wizards of the Coast. So I don't think they're necessarily looking for some of these interactions as well. And honestly, if if they were doing designs so boring that every now and then they didn't come across one of these accidental interactions with a, an obscure 20-year-old card. I I would say they're not pushing the limits enough, so it's it's not bad that they're coming across these interactions. It's just sometimes they're obscure, but they are extremely powerful as, you know, the world-gorgor combo deck turns out to be.
0: Yeah, that's a great point to make. A lot of the show, since we'll be talking about strategies that seem to be unintended, it might sound like a criticism, but it doesn't have to be. And in fact, some of the strategies that we'll talk about once, you know, we get into some of these commanders, they're not even necessarily the most popular strategies for those commanders either. They're just some things that we notice tend to be a little bit more powerful than what the commander was originally intended to do, but that doesn't make them bad design and that doesn't make them bad commanders for the original strategy either. So definitely a great point to touch on. All right, we're going to move on to our next commander here. Dana, I'm actually going to pass this one off to you, because I, as, as I understand it, you uh, you actually have this commander as one of your decks.
2: I do. Um, it was one of the first decks I made when I first started playing the game, shortly <laughs> after this this card came out. Um, and, you know, I kind of initially realized that Edric's by Master of Trust really wasn't a political card, but, you know, I myself didn't quite get it for quite a while. It was one of those things where I played it and attacked and realized, oh, it's good to play with evasive creatures. And so I put more in the deck and put more in the deck, and they got more and more efficient. And the more efficient they got and the more of them there were, the better the deck was. And pretty quickly I realized I don't care what my opponents are doing. There's nothing political at all here. I'm just attacking with Scribd, Sprites, and Flying Men.
0: Right, so Edric's by Master Trust. He is from, if I recall correctly, the very original Commander product in 2011, 3-mana 2-2 Elf Rogue. Whenever a creature deals combat damage to one of your opponents, its controller may draw a card. So the idea was clearly to go for some type of simic political sort of situation to encourage your opponents to attack each other, and then they would draw cards as a reward. What happens instead is exactly what you just mentioned. You're running a bunch of one-drops with Flying, one-drops with Unblockable, and then you'll draw a bazillion cards, and there just isn't really much of a political aspect to Edric at all. All because it's just so much more convenient so much quicker for you to just attack people with a bunch of you know tiny cuts here and there that eventually will allow you to find a Big haymaking spells like a crater hoof behemoth or something like that to just really slam people out with all of your tiny creatures, rather than doing anything political with them at all.
2: Yeah, I mean Edric fixes the problem inherent in aggro, which is you run out of gas. Well, you right. you don't run out of gas. You, if anything, you get more gas. The more spells you play, the more creatures you have, the more cards you draw, the further down you dig. To hit that Crater Hoof or those extra turn spells to do it all again, to once again try to hit a, you know, the Crater Hoof or the Biomass Mutation or the Beastmaster Ascension or, you know, there's, there's Triumph of the Horde. There's a dozen different things you can hit in that deck that just win you the game. And I pretty much guarantee that was not the intent of that card. Yeah,
0: so much for politics. Sometimes punching people is just a lot better. Isn't that right, Matt?
1: It's always better. Why, why trust <laughs> other people to do your work when you can just do it yourself?
0: All right, what is our next commander on this list, Matt?
1: So the next one is Chulain, Teller of Tales, one that's come under a little bit of fire recently.
0: Including by us, let's be honest. <laughs> and,
1: including by us, yes, we, we gave it kind of a side eye, but Chulain, I'm gonna read this one because it's it it's pretty powerful. It's two in Bant color, so green, white, and blue for a 2 4 human druid with vigilance. Whenever you cast a creature spell, draw a card. Then you may put a land card onto the battlefield from your hand onto the battlefield. You can also pay three mana and tap it. Return target creature you control to its owner's hand.
0: So what are people actually doing with this? Because it reads like something where you just play a few creatures here, get some polite value, maybe seems really nice in the brawl environment. What are people actually doing
1: with it? Well, people are actually doing a lot of just crazy one drop, insane value. Uh, It made the card Shrieking Drake, a card worth talking about. Um, Normally, a (laughs) 1-1 for 1 with flying that reads when this creature enters the battlefield return a creature you control to its owner's hand well that's usually not going to be too good but you know when you combine it with chulane where you get to draw a card put a land into play um i was talking to a former guest mark nestico he played chulane once he played an elvish visionary drew two cards put a gaia's cradle into play shuffled the deck put it away (laughs)
0: <laughs> he just didn't like did, it as soon as, as he was. Soon
1: as, he, he said, "As soon as he cast his first creature spell with Chulane in play, he knew he was doing things that were too good to, you know, for anybody to be having fun with."
0: And when we look at Chulane's EDH rec page, we also see quite a lot of nasty stuff on there. It is definitely full of tiny creatures, but more than that, Laboratory Maniac, the creature that wins you the game when you would draw a card when your library has no cards in it, that's showing up in 42% of Chulane's decks. And the really important part is the enchantment Allurin, 4-mana enchantment that says mm. any player can play creature cards with converted mana cost 3 or less without paying their mana costs and as though those spells had flash. Mm. That's showing up in 38% of Chulane decks. Thus far, which yeah, you can breeze through that deck extremely quickly to find that laboratory maniac, play him for free with flash, and then all the cards that you're drawing, you'll just be able to win by effectively playing solitaire rather than by doing any of the stuff that Tulane was sort of probably intended to do, which is play creatures and accrue some incremental value. He's bolting right to the gates with a lab man.
1: It's one of those, those, one of the few decks I think outside of maybe Edric. That you actively want to play as, as efficient and small creatures as possible, because that's where you're going to get the most value. If you look at the top highest energy cards, it's all ones and twos. The only thing that costs four or more is Beast Whisperer, which whenever you cast a creature spell, draw a card. Pretty good. And then Tatiova, which is a five drop that whenever a lantern is battlefield, you gain a life and draw a card. <laughs> so it <laughs> right. seems that people in lane decks like drawing a lot of cards is what I think it's Call me crazy, but I think it's safe to make that hypothesis.
2: <laughs> well, indeed. And Alurin's one of those cards, too, that's on the short list of cards that whenever something new is released, people look and say, Did this break Alurin yet? Well, <laughs> uh, you know, Necrotic Ooze maybe is one as well. There's, there's a handful of those where everyone knows it's a matter of time before something crazy happens. And it looks like Chulane's probably pretty close to, to doing that successfully.
0: Indeed. All right, let's move on to our next commander that has some unintended consequences. We're going to be looking at Animar Soul of Elements. This is also from the original Commander product in 2011. Animar Soul of Elements is a 3-mana teamer Commander, so blue, red, and a green. He starts as a 1-1. He has protection from white and from black, which is definitely really impressive, actually, since there's so much removal in those colors. He says whenever you cast a creature spell, you put a plus 1 counter on Animar, and creature spells you cast cost 1 generic mana less to cast for each counter that is on Animar. Definitely really cool, and the original intent behind him was, of course, to play big creatures. That was certainly the goal, and in fact, reducing the colorless costs, well, the generic mana cost, I suppose, Uh, was really good for all those colorless creatures, especially Eldrazi. So ramping your creatures up and up and up to play really, really big dudes was definitely the goal here with Animar. But once folks start tuning him up, a couple of other strategies end up revealing themselves instead. The main one that I'm coming to mind here is going to be Ancestral Statue. This is the 4-mana artifact. It's a 3-4 golem that says when it enters the battlefield, you return a non-land permanent you control to its owner's hand. Well, it can return itself and then Animar will get a counter and then you can play the Ancestral Statue again and it will return itself and Animar will get a counter and then you can play the Ancestral Statue over and over and over again and give Animar infinite counters to one-shot somebody right in the face.
1: Yeah, it's one Boy. of those, it's another one of those cards that we talk about, you know, over 50% for a win condition or, or a combo piece in a certain commander, it's a high, high percentage. Ancestral Statue is played at 57%, so actually more animar players play ancestral statue then you know anya players or anya players or miss angie <laughs> plays world gorger dragon so it's it's worth mentioning that ancestral statue is one of those combo decks that people just want to play in animar
2: well and in, in addition to all of that goodness um animar has protection from the two best removal spell colors in the game so not only is it is it really easy to go infinite or make an infinitely large, you oftentimes just can't respond to it or deal with it. <laughs>
0: right. Yeah, can't exactly path that commander while they're going crazy over there, can you? And,
2: and you're also yeah. in colors that have access to Perforos and Impact Tremors as well. So there's just a lot of ways to to just go infinite with Animar really, really easily. And I, it very much feels like that was not what they had intended when they made that card. Mm-mm.
0: Yeah, well, there's another option here too that often shows up in Animar decks. This one shows up in 43% of Animar decks thus far. That's the card Cloudstone Curio. This is from the original Ravnica set. It's a three mana artifact that says whenever a non artifact permanent comes into play under your control, you may return another permanent you control that shares a type with it to its owner's hand. So that also kind of gets into that same ancestral statue bouncing your creatures and playing them over and over and over again situation, especially because when we look at Animar's page, the card that's sitting right next to Cloudstone Curio is Paragon Drake. That is the five-mana Drake that untaps five lands when it enters the battlefield. So Animar reduces the cost of that Drake, the Drake enters and untaps a bunch of your mana, and then if you've got that Cloudstone Curio in play, you can bounce another creature, which you can then play with all of your now-untapped mana to get your Paragon Drake back, and then you'll just repeatedly bounce your creatures over and over and over and over again. And probably generating infinite mana along the way while also making animar huge to like enough to deal with someone and then do those exact perfros things that you just mentioned there's a lot of combo stuff that's actually happening in animar which is a lot to say for a dude who seems to just want to play big creatures in the first place
1: yeah i i wanted to build animar for a while actually and i wanted to do the big creature out i wanted to do eldrazi and you know maybe some some big fats. uh Soul of the Harvest type stuff, which also shows up at you know almost 70% of Animar decks. But it was too easy to just accidentally turn into some insanely mean combo engine where you just almost go infinite by accident. It's kind of a, a gave Guru of Spores type of, oops, I just found a new combo
2: type of commander. No, trust.
0: We'll we'll get to him later on in the show. Oh, okay. Don't you worry. Well, <laughs> I think
2: this, this is a theme we will also get to in the future on the show where we uh, talk about a card that does something when a creature comes into a play of a certain type that winds up just being a variant on this where you just want to play those creatures and bounce them and play them and bounce them again.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those, those whenever triggers can definitely be uh, really, really darn nasty. It can lead to some infinite combos. Whenever one thing happens, whenever X, then you Y. Whenever you Y, then you Z. Whenever you Z, then you X. It's definitely easy to find some of those combos. And that's actually the case for the next commanders on our list here. I've put these sort of both into the same category. That's Grumgully, who is new from Throne of Eldraine. He's the three-mana Gruul commander that says when a non-human creature enters the battlefield under your control, you can put a plus-one counter on it. I've put him alongside Masaryk, Kral Death Priest, The prince, he's one of my favorites favorite pet cards that I can never quite actually fit into a deck, and he's the 5-mana Golgari Insect Commander. He starts as like a 2-2 or something, but doesn't stay there for long, because he says whenever you sacrifice a permanent, whenever anyone sacrifices a permanent, you get plus-one counters on each of your creatures. Those seem like their original goal is just to put counters on creatures, but what they actually can end up doing is going infinite with persist creatures. You sacrifice a creature with persist, it comes back with a minus-one counter on it, these commanders will put a plus-one counter back on that persist creature, and then you can sacrifice it again for more and more value
2: well and it's good to compare those two side by side because grumgully is kind of the version of maserick where they've realized that's a thing so there's a couple of caveats on grumgully both in terms of being unable to do it to humans and the fact that it's in colors that aren't deep into persist like maserick is so that's an example very much of where they realize just how abusive that is in the case of Masaryk and put in some roadblocks to make sure it isn't nearly as easy to do so with Gromgully.
0: Yeah, that is definitely true. But when we look at Grumgully's page, we are certainly seeing those persist creatures. Yeah. Woodfall Primus, Scuzzback Marauders, Airy Oofs, Thunderblust. They're not even necessarily excellent creatures. I mean, Woodfall Primus is pretty cool, but not all of these are necessarily going to you know, be anything to write home about. But they are showing up at around 54% of these alongside sacrifice outlets like Goblin Bombardment. Because when you sacrifice that creature and it comes back and then you can sacrifice it again annihilating those counters, those minus one and plus one negating each other. Goblin Bombardment's going to have you do one damage to the entire table until everyone is mowed down. It's definitely showing up at a really high clip, and we see some of that happening with Masarek's page as well. Alrighty, what is our next commander with unintended consequences?
1: So the next one is the Peer and Toothy combo. So Peer, Imaginative Rascal, he is two and a green for a 1-1. He partners with Toothy, Imaginative Fiend. We'll get to him in a second. But Peer just reads... If one or more counters would be put on a permanent you control, put that many plus one of each of those types of counters on that permanent instead. Well, Toothy sure likes those counters, because Toothy is a 1-1 one, one for, th- for four, who reads, partners with Pierre, Imaginative Rascal, whenever you draw a card, put a plus one plus one counter on Toothy, Imaginative Fiend, and when Toothy leaves the battlefield, draw a card for each plus one plus one counter on it.
0: It's not even when he dies, it's not even when he's exiled, like he can be bounced to your hand and he'll still draw you those cards.
1: Yep, and it's leaving the battlefield in general is a little insane because you can stack your triggers to have Toothie, leave the battlefield, come back in, get those counters all over again. It's a little unruly.
0: Yeah, so that's definitely a thing that we often see that Toothy can use when it's being tuned up. If you blink Toothy and he comes immediately back to the battlefield as that spell is resolving, it just blinks and then immediately comes right back he will actually come back with no counters on him, but then you'll draw cards per his Leaves the Battlefield trigger and get all those counters back on him. And the same thing is also true when you use clone abilities. You can actually play a clone card that enters as a copy of Toothy. The Legend Rule will annihilate the original, and then it will draw you a bunch of cards to put counters onto your new clone. And you can dig through your deck so, so quickly this way.
2: Yeah, it winds up being just a really efficient way to get down a find Lab Man.
0: Right, who shows up in 34% of these toothy
1: decks It's almost like Laboratory Maniac Maniac shows up in just a little too many decks, I would say It's almost like it's just (laughs) accidentally just a good win condition to slot in
2: When when a new commander comes out, the first two checks are Does this work with Lab Man and does this work with Food Chain? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> that's true, though.
0: Yeah, but that's just it. Toothy seemed, you know, pure and Toothy just seemed like a deck that was going to have the original goal of getting big over time and just hitting people, probably with commander damage, and instead what it ends up doing once you start tuning it up a bit is using some weird blink spells and some clones to find some lab man combos. Definitely not the original consequence, I would say, but it can certainly be a powerful one. Dana, who's next on our list?
2: Next we have a couple of Silvallas. Silvalla Heart of the Wilds and Silvalla Explorer Returned. Uh, Saval Explorer Returned is one of um, Matt's favorite cards. Well, not one of your favorites, but it's in your favorite color. It's Selesnya. It is, is green-white. Saval Heart of the Wilds is mono-green. Now, the way both those cards, particularly the first one, are kind of written is they're designed to look kind of like political cards, which would make sense since they came from the Conspiracy set. Um, and I'll read Savala Heart of the Wilds first. She is the mono-green legendary creature elf for three mana. Whenever another creature enters a battlefield, its controller may draw a card if its power is greater than each other creature. But the real gas here is green and tap and add an X mana in any combination of color to your mana pool, where X is the greatest power among creatures you control. So Savala so gets played in a really competitive EDH deck called Brilstorm. Um, my shop plays a lot of one v one competitive EDH, and it's an absolute powerhouse there, where the deck is basically designed to generate infinite mana, untap you know, via untapped triggers and play just giant disgusting stuff and then oftentimes win with some kind of a haste enabler to just, you know, plow you over with Eldrazi or whatever. Um, and the original Slavala kind of functions the same way. She's, she's the one that really looks political in that she taps and everyone draws a card, except for she gets mana based on whatever cards are revealed. The, the controller gets mana whenever it's revealed. So the same thing there, you try to abuse ways to untap her repeatedly To fill your hand with cards in addition to having mana at your disposal to use to cast those cards. And you're not really trying to, you're not really worried about what anybody else draws because you're planning on drawing down to a combo, hopefully, and just winning before anybody can do anything that turn with those cards they've just drawn.
0: Right, and that untapping shenanigans is what makes these Salvalas so powerful since they can produce so much mana. So Umbral Mantle is the one that really comes to mind. That's the equipment three mana that actually equips for zero, but it gives the equipped creature the activated ability to pay three mana and untap itself to get plus two, plus two until end of turn. If you slap that onto one of the Salvalas, they'll probably be able to make enough mana to counteract that activation cost and then just probably produce infinite mana for you to do nasty stuff with.
1: Yeah, it's not every day that a competitive commander, well, it's usually the competitive commanders that make a, you know, a random common from 6th edition, you know, worth 25, 50 cents, vitalize. It's just an instant for one green that says, untap all creatures you control. Usually going to be pretty low impact, but Sylvala players love it.
0: Yeah, just untapping can be so insane and especially the original Selvala, the one that's green and white and makes everyone draw a card. One of the things that people might do with that one while they're untapping her with all that mana and forcing everyone to draw cards, that's the really interesting part about it. It's sort of a Selesnya mill strategy because you'll make your opponents deck out and in between all of your tapping and untapping shenanigans, maybe refill your own library with some type of uh, shuffle effect to get it back from your graveyard so that you won't deck out but everyone else you'll force to draw too many cards and then win the game with an infinite mana combo that mills them out in Selesnia.
2: Yeah, it's it's really kind of a fascinating um, thing to see in those particular colors, but it's also very much one of those decks where if you get to that certain point in the game, you just are done. Like the Saval player is just gonna go off and, and the turn is going to go infinite and you're gonna get milled out and and it's unstoppable once you hit that kind of point in the return.
1: I think this just proves that green and white is the best color combination, you guys, yeah.
2: and it's time to, <laughs> it's
1: time to admit it.
2: But this was also this was also one of those cards, like, I remember doing the pre-release for Conspiracy for the Solala Explorer Returned, and that was very much a card that nobody really paid attention to at, re- at release. Even in pods where somebody had it and cast it, it was like, oh, well, you know, it's, I guess, slightly better for you since you get mana off the draw, but nobody paid attention to it. It took it a little while for everyone to figure out Just how much you could abuse it. And I think very much the uh, designers just didn't catch that. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Alright, our next Commanders coming up here. These also are going to have some weird things in common, even though at first glance, they might not immediately look like it. So I'm looking here at the Commander Edgar Markov. He, of course, is extremely popular in Mardu Vampire Tribal. He's 6 mana for a 4-4, four, four, and he's got that awesome Eminence ability. When you cast another Vampire spell, if he's on the battlefield or in your Command Zone, you'll create a 1-1 one, one Black Vampire creature token. He's also got 1st Dragon and Haste, and when he attacks, he pumps up all of your Vampires, but really, the main focus Focuses on casting those vampire spells. And he seems to have something in common with another six mana creature. This one's mono red. It's Lathless Dragon Queen. Much less popular for certain, but they do have a pretty similar commonality because Lathless says whenever another non token dragon creature enters the battlefield under your control, you create a 5 5 red dragon creature token with flying. And it can also pay mana to pump up all of your dragons. Well, Dana, I think you've built both of these decks. What do they have in common?
2: Well, the, the interesting thing here too is is Edgar in particular was a was a deck that Matt and I both kind of built immediately when it was first spoiled. Mm-hmm. And I remember the conversation that was taking place about Edgar and people were talking, you know, within the hour of it being spoiled, oh, cool, we can run you know this vampire and that vampire. And Matt and I were the first two that were really like, oh no, you just want to run terrible, terrible, <laughs> terrible one drop vampires. Yeah, this wasn't too
1: far after we started uh, writing all together, and, yeah. and instantly you and I both were like, "Well, you're just going to play like Pulse Tracker, right? And you're going to play all these you know random bad vampires that we have from you know Shadows over Innistrad, and you're just going to storm out and play Perforos as a top end." Like I, I don't think in the time that I ever played Edgar Markov, I think I ca- actually cast my commander twice. Three times? Maybe yeah, not
2: not often.
1: You don't you don't need him. And and we talk about how Sylvala, Dana, you just said it took took a little while for Solvala to 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 catch on. Edgar Markov, after we had that initial conversation, I think it was maybe a day later that people started like, Oh, oh yeah. So we don't we don't care about patron of the vein. We care about everything else that costs one mana.
0: Yeah, you don't really play much of the Haymakers. And Lathless decks, when we look at that page, it definitely does have a lot more of the classic dragon tribal stuff that we'd see at like five mana or something like that. But Dana, when you tried out that mono-red Lathless deck, what I believe you reported finding was that you cared a lot more about your tiny two-mana red changeling creatures that happen to be dragons rather than the actual big dragons themselves. I
2: mean, like if, if I had a Cloudstone Curio out and I was able to you know drop the one-mana Slumbering Dragon, that was a game-winning condition because I would just you know, recast that six times or something and make six giant dragons that almost always had haste and just kill people. So yeah, that, that deck was absolutely similar to the Edgar Markov deck and to a degree Edric, where you are just trying to run as cheap a creatures as possible without even caring what they do. All you care about is proking that a dragon has entered the battlefield ability.
0: Yeah, really, really gross stuff when you're able to get those. And the tiny little creatures, it's a bit like Edric in that way, I would say, yeah, actually. Yeah, for sure. Edric isn't doing much with politics, and in the same way, you know, Lathless decks may not inherently be doing something with dragons, but sometimes taking advantage of combos like Cloudstone Curio or just really, really tiny dragons so that they can get that big five uh, five token instead. So yeah, definitely some interesting stuff when you start focusing on the tiny, tiny creatures. Matt, what is our next commander?
1: Our next commander is one that still just confuses the... Just- living a bejesus out of me but it's Unesh, chrysofink sovereign so it is four blue blue for a four four legendary sphinx with flying sphinx spells cost two less to cast so naturally i'm thinking sure he's a, a, a sphinx tribal deck well he also reads when Unesh, chrysofink sovereign or another sphinx enters the battlefield under your control reveal it up to four cards of your library an opponent separates those cards into two piles put one into your hand and the other into your graveyard
0: so a little factor fiction kind of ability. A little mini. Why is that so
1: important? Well, it loads up your graveyard. You start drawing a bunch of cards, and you just lock people down and, and blink You know your Sphinx and just draw your whole deck. It's one of those, oops, I accidentally lab-manned-the-entire-table-yet-again type of commanders.
2: Yeah, I mean, very <laughs> yeah. much, I think the, the really strong version of this deck is actually called Sphinx Storm. It was basically, it's built around casting as many Sphinxes at that discounted rate as quickly as possible to, you know, churn through your deck to find whatever combo engine you're looking for. Uh, It's it's not a, you know, CEDH-level competitive deck, but, like, it's a really strong combo engine that cares about just filtering through the deck, and it doesn't really care about Sphinxes beyond the fact that the creature being a Sphinx allows you to do that. And that's kind of of a thing we're seeing here, like, with some of these tribal decks that have that ability, whether it's Lathless or Edgar Markov, it wants you to cast that tribe, but to most efficiently use that deck, it doesn't care about the strength of the creature you're casting, it cares about the efficiency.
0: And another big thing, too, that I think is so important is the fact that Unesh... Uses a factor fiction ability which puts cards into your hand, but it doesn't technically count as drawing cards, right. which means Unesh is able to take advantage of different artifacts that say players can't draw cards. So, a classic example is the card Omen Machine six mana artifact, players can't draw cards, and at the beginning of their draw step, a player will exile the top card or library if it's a land they go into play, but otherwise you can cast that spell without paying its mana cost. So, it forces people to just play whatever is off the top of your deck. Well, when you're forcing everyone to not be able to draw cards, you as the Unesh player stay. You'll get to put cards into your hand, tons of cards, in fact, because you're getting around the wording of that ability with that Factor Fiction-style ability. It becomes a very efficient lockdown piece.
2: Yeah, it's really tough to get around when uh, you're put in that position, for sure.
0: All right, our next commander is also mono-blue. This is Fibble Flip. The Lost He's a 2-mana 1-1 one one homunculus, when he enters the battlefield you draw a card, but if he entered from your library or was cast from your library, you will draw 2 cards instead, and whenever he becomes the target of a spell, you can shuffle Fibblethip right back into its owner's library. Clearly the goal for Fibblethip is just to be found he just is a little bit lost and he wants to be found but that's not what people are doing with him he's not being found he's being manipulated with effects like proteus staff proteus staff is a three mana artifact that allows you to pay two in a blue tap it and then you'll put target creature on the bottom of its owner's library and that creature's owner will reveal cards from the top of their library until he or she reveals a creature card the player puts that card into play and the rest of the cards on the bottom of their library and here's the key part in any order. You don't put the cards back on the bottom of your library in any order. So if your Fibblethip deck has no creatures in it and you use Proteus Staff on the Fibblethip, then you will get to deterministically order the way that you want your cards to be put into your library because Proteus Staff will cycle through the entire deck, find Fibblethip again, he will go into play, draw you two cards because he entered from the library, and then Proteus Staff will let you put your cards in any order. That is probably not what they intended when they made Fibblethip, but it is definitely a powerful tool.
2: It is probably not what they intended when they made Proteus Staff, too. That's kind of a a poster child for unintended consequences all unto itself. Yeah, how ironic that that a meme card turned into a combo engine. (laughs) Exactly.
0: That is really fun. Okay, Dana, hit us up with our next commander. Our next
2: commander we have here is Zakama Primal Calamity. So, for those that have forgotten, because it's been a couple years at this point, Zakama is 9 mana, 6 and Naya. So, that's a lot for a 9 9. Um, and it has some keywords, Vigilance, Reach, and Trample, which really aren't the point here. Um, the point is when Zakama Primal Calamity enters the battlefield, if you cast it, untap all lands you control. And then it has some activated abilities um, 2 in a red, it deals 3 damage to target creature, 2 in a green, destroy target artifact or enchantment, and 2 in a white gain 3 life. So what usually winds up happening here is just kind of infinite bounce trigger kind of things to untap your your lands that presumably are tapping for more mana than they caught than they than they cost to cast your commander if there's mana doublers or something and you get basically a storm deck going on.
0: Yeah, exactly. You can use things like Mana Reflection to double all of the uh, mana output of each of your lands, and then stuff like that new land, Sanctum of Eternity, which came from the Commander 2019 decks. It's just a land that taps for colorless, but can also pay two mana, tap itself, return target commander you own from the battlefield to your hand. You can only activate that ability on your turn, but that's fine. Zakama will go back to your hand, and then you can cast it with all of your big mana stuff. It will untap all your lands, including Sanctum of Eternity, so if you have one of those mana doublers, you can tap them all again and repeat the process to get a bunch, an absolute bunch of mana to then put into all of those activated abilities of Zakama.
2: Yeah, because because of how it's set up too. Oftentimes when you can generate infinite mana, a lot of times it's colorless mana. That is not the case here because it's based on untapping your lands. You can basically have any combination of mana colors at all that you need to go infinite.
1: Yeah, it makes cards like Mirari's Wake just an absolute must-play if you're trying to do this. Basically, Zakama is the Naya version of what... Shoe lane is to Bant colors. You just play a bunch of value, double all your mana, and then you just go insane. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I almost wonder, I mean, we've been talking about this from the lens of unintended consequences, unintended strategies from these commanders. I almost wonder if this was actually, you know, very much on people's radars, given what those activated abilities of Zakama can actually do. It can deal three damage to a creature, but not to players. Or it can destroy artifacts or enchantments, or it can give you a bunch of life. But if you do go infinite on this, you're not actually going to definitively win the game. You'll be able to destroy any creature that you want, and you'll have infinite life, but you won't be burning down the people against you with that activated ability. So there is a bit of reins on that, but even so, this becomes Anaya Storm deck, which is definitely a weird thing to see from what you would expect to be just one big old dinosaur.
2: Yeah, it's. I, mean, it's, I think we discussed this too. I think this was one of the shows we reviewed, I believe, correct? We were, we were recording when this came out. This was one of our early ones, and we had commented early on that people were going to maybe want to build this dinosaur tribal, and that was not how it was built to be played.
1: Not at all. Right. Not at all.
0: Alright, our
2: next Commanders are going to be in some
0: different groupings here because they all sort of fall under an umbrella known as Stacks. So the first one that we're going to look at here is Derevi, Imperial Tactician. This came from the Commander 2013 decks. It's a Bont Commander that, when it hits people or when it enters the battlefield, can tap or untap permanents. And... That is definitely a good way to sort of manipulate things, because if no one can untap stuff, say you're using things like the card Stasis, which says people skip their untap step, and Derevi is able to untap your things, then you're the only person who gets to play magic. The same is also true for the Planeswalker Teferi Temporal Archmage, which has an ability to untap for permanents you control. Or another Planeswalker, also in band colors actually, Estrid the Mask, which can untap each enchanted permanent you control. Each of these commanders isn't necessarily, you know, a must for a stacks-style deck, but it is a very, very strong strategy once you actually start tuning up those decks because you get to be the only person who can untap your stuff when you are locking down everyone else's ability to play magic. It becomes very potent indeed.
1: Yeah, De- Derevi's one of those original, you don't get to play magic, I'm going to tap everything down, when I need it to be tapped, but when I need it to be untapped, I'm going to untap it. So stuff like Static Orb is, is one of those very high on the salt score. It's a, some of those cards that we haven't talked about in a little bit, but cards people don't really appreciate when you play against them. Uh, Static Orb is an artifact for three. If Static Orb is untapped, players can't untap more than one permanent during their untapped step. Well, Derevi players in their untapped step just find a way to tap Static Orb, And then they just get to untap everything. Then they tap it again, so the rest of the table does not get to untap. It's just a very, it's trigger-happy. It's very, find a way to kind of tiptoe around some rules almost. But it's very, very annoying, very frustrating to play against.
2: Yeah, it's one of those cards, like, I would wager that the original intent with Derevi was to allow you to knock blockers out of the way so your birds or whatever it is could get through to deal combat damage, Mm -hmm. I, I would bet they didn't envision that being a way to infinitely maintain stasis.
0: Right. And I definitely think, especially for the other two that we mentioned here, Teferi the Planeswalker and Estrid the Planeswalker, I mean, the intent on those was definitely not to go into some type of stacks build, but given their potent untap abilities, it just happens to be a really good thing for them. And in fact, those two commanders open up an entirely other probably unintended strategy here as well with the Chain Veil combo. Chain Veil is an artifact that you can pay a bunch of mana to allow you to use another ability on your Planeswalkers this turn, even though you've already activated one. Well, the ability that you use can be the one that untaps the Chain Veil and a bunch of your mana rocks, so then you can use the abilities again, and again, and again, and combo that way. So not only is it stacks, but some of these commanders also are able to take advantage of a combo that may not have initially been intended, because, I mean, what, Teferi was probably going originally for a Blue Super Friends type of deck, and Esther the Masked was clearly going for Enchantress? Well that's not necessarily the only strategy available to them, sometimes they can do some other nasty Chain Veil, or Stack Stuff, too.
2: And and, and when Teferi was first released, I mean, that that sat on a lot of shelves. That was not a commander anyone was chasing down initially because it took people a while to figure out just exactly how to play at that level with that card. Whereas today, I think, something like that, people are are immediately looking for those lines.
0: Right. All right, we have got another sort of umbrella of commanders here. Matt, you want to run us through them?
1: Sure can. So these are ones that... I personally don't have anything against. But these are the ones that fall under mass land destruction. So the first one up is going to be Atali Primal Storm and then Kalia of the Vast. So Atali Primal Storm, he's one of those red card advantage engines we've talked about. He is four red red for a 6-6 Elder Dragon or Elder Dinosaur, excuse me. Uh, whenever Atali Primal Storm attacks, exile a top card of each player's library. You may cast any number of non-land cards exiled this way without paying their mana costs. So naturally, he doesn't need any mana. He doesn't need any lands. You can just attack and cast everything for free, so why not, you know, blow everybody else's lands up? Kalia the Vast is a little similar, except Kalia is one in Mardu colors, so a white, a black, and a red for a 2-2 human cleric with flying. Whenever Kalia of the Vast attacks an opponent, you may put an angel, demon, or dragon creature from your hand onto the battlefield tapped and attacking that opponent. Another one of those cases of you don't really need any mana. Once you get Kalia on the battlefield, you're Cheating everything into play, much like, you know, Atali Primal Storm. So, why not blow up everybody's lands and deny them resources when you don't need those resources either because everything is being done for free?
0: Right. Original goal is just to get free things. Free things are great, right? Free things everyone likes. Well, what actually can end up happening when folks tune these decks is that they realize no one else gets to have things. Only I get to play the things. This
1: was definitely when I had my Narsit deck. From years ago, I had a mass land destruction package because Narsa doesn't need any lands to cast everything. You just need to attack and cast everything for free.
0: Oh, yeah. Hey, Narset, that's another one that probably has some unintended consequences. Narset was probably just invented to be like, hey, let's cast some free spells. That'll be pretty innocent, right? Nah, it turns out that what's usually going to be best with Narset is extra turns and extra combat spells, which just completely wipe the entire board away, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, land destruction is definitely among those things when you're playing free spells like these commanders.
2: Yeah, the, the free spell commanders initially were very much kind of overlooked. Both Narset and Jaleva were ones that I think people at the time didn't realize just how impactful that could be to be able to still cast and do things when all the lands are gone and they're both commanders that exist in colors where you can barely easily make all the lands go away.
1: Yeah. yeah I, really, really. I think powerful. the only thing that's keeping Itali from being more played and more popular is just the fact that he's mono red. It's just a mono red uh, dinosaur. So Naturally, people aren't going to be too drawn to playing mono-red, but if there was just another color even, if it was red-green, red-white, whatever it was with the exact same abilities, I have a feeling Itali would be much more popular.
0: Before we move on to our next commander, I just want to say I think Itali is a she, but I also don't know for certain. What I do Itali know for certain is about roar. Itali is that... Yeah, Rawr. what I do know for certain is that Atali is a very powerful commander when you play against it, precisely because of that mass lane destruction stuff. Yeah, I personally anyway.
2: respect Atali's privacy too much to look underneath their their tail <laughs> oh and check for sure.
0: So, let's move on to our next commander. I'm sorry for opening that door. I'm going to close it real quick. <laughs> Dana, please tell us about our next sequence of commanders.
2: So, our next please. little bundle here are the food chain commanders, namely Prosh, Skyraider of Care, the First Sliver, and General Tazri. And in the case of the last two, the First Sliver and General Tazri, very much the intended goal with those is to be be a tribal deck. The First Sliver obviously slivers, and General Tazri is very much designed as an ally tribal commander. Um, Prosh is kind of supposed to be a basically beater that sacrifices a bunch of kobolds and hits you in the face. The reality is all of those commanders work way, way better with food chain where you just cast them a gazillion times and generate infinite mana or infinite damage and kill people
0: yeah food chain is that really nasty three mana green enchantment you can exile a creature you control to add x mana of any color to your mana pool where x is the removed creature's converted mana cost plus one, because why not? And that mana can only be spent to play creature spells, but that's exactly what you're gonna do with those commanders, is play them again and again, and something like the first liver will then cascade your stuff, and then you can exile the first liver and maybe even a creature that it got for you, to then play it again, and then just dig deeper and deeper through your deck. Or, in the case of Prosh, you'll not only be able to exile Prosh to get six mana, plus one, seven mana to help you recast Prosh, but you'll even be able to exile the tokens, the kobolds that Prosh makes for you. And Prosh makes more and more kobolds as you spend more and more mana to play Prosh. It becomes very, very nasty very, very quickly. You can get a bunch of mana this way.
2: I mean, the, the first sliver decks, a lot of the lists I've seen don't run any other slivers.
0: the (laughs) The cdh ones you mean yeah yeah yeah. we still got plenty if you actually look on the the page for for sliver on edh rec you're still going to see people are definitely playing that one as sliver tribal yeah but if you are tuning it up to be a little crazy with those food chain things definitely those possibilities exist the decks are nasty
2: yeah i i and i think the the actual the new niv mizzet somewhat works for this as well and i I guess that was also not what the goal was there I, these these tend to very much be CEDH-level decks, maybe Prosh, not quite as much. But these are ones you probably don't generally see at your average 75%-ish uh, store pods. No, right. not at the all. The Food
0: Chain versions, yes, of course. Yes,
2: yes. People play, you know, Tazri
0: and First Liver all over the place just as regular travel stuff. But those are definitely things to be aware of. When you see a First Liver deck across the table or a Prosh deck across the table, it could be the case that they're actually doing some really darn nasty food chain stuff instead of the classic things that you would expect. All right, we've got one last category, one that I have simply named I Have a Colorless Activated Ability, Ergo I Will Go Infinite. And this is where we mentioned that guy, Matt, that you mentioned earlier <laughs> in the show gave Guru of Spores, which everyone knows by now, enters with a bunch of plus one counters and he can pay mana to convert counters into tokens and to convert tokens into counters. And actually, among his company, I would also include something like Thrasios Triton Hero, two-mana partner Simic Commander. He's a merfolk wizard, one-three. The real important part is that you can pay four mana. He'll scry one, then reveal the top card of your library. If it's land, goes into play tapped. Otherwise, you draw that card. The fact that those are activated abilities that cost colorless mana means that once you get those those infinite mana combos which tend to produce a lot of mana either of colorless variety or of just one color well those commanders are going to be available for you to do some absolutely crazy crazy things with i think that you know the original goal for gabe was to do some tokens and plus one counter stuff and the original goal for thrasios was just some simic control but what they end up being instead is infinite combo engines
1: yeah it, there's a reason that thrasios is one of the the tier one as it were competitive decks you know partner with uh was a vile smasher and, and that's kind of the go-to four color good stuff as as Dana likes to put it. Um, it there's just no reason you know it's it's very very easy to make infinite mana there's no reason not to play thrasios and then just another good stuff commander where you can just churn through your whole deck and you have access to a lot of colors and yeah it's just it's very easy it's a, another one of those oops I made a combo and
2: now I'm going to win. Maybe I'll find a lab man, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, and that's actually something that I feel we should probably touch on. A lot of the stuff that we've mentioned here are, you know, the commanders that have unintended consequences. But as we've been discussing them, it does seem as though it's some of the cards within the 99 that are actually the real culprits. Things like Laboratory Maniac and Food Chain and World Gorder Dragon. Those are the combos that seem to be wielding the commanders rather than the commander wielding the combo. Does that make any sense?
2: Well, yeah, in, in particular because there are oftentimes cards that were made before Commander was really a frequently played thing that you know Wizards of the Coast and their testers were probably aware of. So th- those considerations weren't anything they even thought about when they are designing these cards. There was never a consideration of, you know, it, when Food Chain exiles your Commander, it doesn't matter. You can just recast it. That wasn't given consideration when Food Chain was made. So the repercussions of that today, when you have a creature that you can continuously cast off Food Chain... It winds up being a much bigger deal than it was when that card was originally brewed.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think when they first designed World Gorger Dragon, they were anticipating, you know, all the animate dead yeah. <laughs> shenanigans that were going to happen, and and they did. I mean, there, <laughs> I played. I remember a few years ago, I played in a Legacy event, and some guy was playing Dance with the Dead, Tassiger, and World Gorger Dragon, and his win condition was a single copy of Collective Brutality because he would World Gorger Dragon combo make all the infinite mana activate Tasigur a bunch of times, and so he had infinite mana, so he would drain you for two with collective brutality, activate Tasigur so many times that you had to give him his collective brutality back, and then he would just do it again and do it again and do it again and do it again. And it was silly. I beat him because it turns out if you kill World Gorge Dragon with the Exile Everything trigger on the stack, they just lose their entire battlefield forever. So that's actually a fun counter, but yeah, it, it's, it's a silly combo that just didn't have consequences that you know i'm sure they were looking at 2019 back when they designed it in what judgment
0: right right. ages and ages ago back when some of us were but a zygote
1: well joey you weren't even that like i think your parents were still in their teens <laughs> oh my goodness.
0: i'm like almost exactly as old as the game of magic itself matt sometimes one of these days you're gonna have to move off the, the we're never jokes. going to move off those jokes Uh, And never leave the dad jokes either. This has been really fun to go through, but we have got one more segment that we'd like to get to. That is challenge the stats. There's a bunch of statistics on track, but we don't always agree. Sometimes we think that cards are overplayed or underplayed. So we like to challenge those statistics just a little bit. So let's move to that now. Dana, what's your challenge this week?
2: My challenge is an old enchantment called Teferi's Veil. Teferi's Veil is currently in 475 decks, and I'll read what it does. Whenever any creature you control attacks, it phases out at the end of combat. Now, th- <laughs> the reason I, I bring this up is I'm, I'm running it in my Edric Spymaster Trest deck, um, and in my thought process there when I first saw the card was, well, it's not like I'm blocking with any of these creatures ever, um, or if I do have a Scribd Sprite hanging back, it's not like it's blocking, it's going to save me from losing However, my, my, my big problem in the deck is someone getting through a board wipe that I'd happen to have a counterspell. So if I phase my creatures out after combat, there's almost no downside for me, and it can you know save my entire board state. Um, it's quite good in there. I think more Edric decks should run it. It's only an 8% of decks. But the deck where it really should be in more of is Cedrus, Trader King, who is a commander out of Alara. And he says each creature card in your graveyard has unearthed, for two in black. What's interesting here is Teferi's Veil gets around the clause on unearth that says, remove it from the game at the end of turn or if it would leave play. Because phasing doesn't actually leave play technically. It gets around the get rid of the creature card at the end of turn from unearth. So, a lot of the same principles apply there where it can save your board standard, but the fact that it lets you keep the creature after you and Arthur from cedrus it should be in a lot more decks for a simple two mana enchantment that's almost all upside particularly in that deck
0: dana i'm gonna confess something to you right now and i want everyone to hear it i'm furious with you because this is on my list of potential challenge the stat picks and you stole it from all me. right
2: <laughs> See, i knew i hacked your computer for a reason <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's a great enchantment option for anyone who's playing a very aggressive and creature-based deck in blue. And there aren't necessarily too many of those, but there are definitely more than 475 lists that are very aggressive with their creatures that would want to protect them from things like a rogue board wipe. Using that phasing ability to prevent them from being messed with is definitely a good way to maintain your army. And Dana, I'm just so mad that you took that pick from me. How dare you? I I I, I, right, I one. <laughs> I it will be noted it has been noted I'm going to move on to my challenge the stats now so that Matt can't take it all right so the one that I am looking at is actually going to be the card grun the lonely king you jerk you
1: totally I'm... told it yeah. <laughs> you, did, you didn't really steal it I I, yeah. I I I hear green so I'm on board so yeah go ahead go ahead
0: <laughs> All right, so Grun the Lonely King. Specifically, I'm looking at this card within the context of a Xenogos God of Revels deck. Grun the Lonely King is probably a pretty forgotten mono-green legend from Dominaria. He's 6 mana for a 5-5. He's an uncommon legendary creature, ape warrior. He does have a kicker ability that will give him some extra plus 1 plus 1 counters, but the real important part is that whenever Grun attacks alone, you double his power and toughness until end of turn. So, since he's a 5-5, when he would attack alone, he'd become a 10-10. Pretty respectable, maybe not anything that a Xenagost God of Revels deck hasn't seen before, though. Xenagost God of Revels, since it is the Gruul enchantment creature that, you know, devotion will make it a creature, all that. But the real important part, of course, for Xenagost is that he also doubles the power of one of your creatures at the beginning of combat, gives it plus X plus X until end of turn, where X is that creature's power. Xenagos is usually hitting people for like 20 or something with this creature, so the deck is full of things that are really, really huge. But that's the deceptive thing about Grun the the King. Grun the the King is actually really huge when you use that ability on Grun. With Xenagos, Grun will turn from a 5-5 into a 10-10, and then when he attacks alone, he'll turn from a 10-10 into a 20-20 and really, really annihilate one of your opponents. That's going to be half of their life total. I mean... Yeah, granted you'll need some trample, but that's what is true of most of the creatures in Xenagos anyway. I just think that this is a really good option if you're looking for something especially on the budget end for a Xenoghost deck. It only shows up in 50 Xenoghost decks right now, which I think is absolutely insane considering that there's like 1,100 Xenoghost decks total. Xenagos can always use new big creatures to hit people with, and I think run is a really, really great option that only costs you like a quarter to be able to do, but it's going to cost one of your opponents about 20 of their life points.
1: And you can pair that with a card that Dana loves in Berserk, and just one shot people gives them a, a source of trample. So, yeah, I, I can get on board with this.
0: That Chandra's outrage, a soul's fire, fling, a whole bunch of the different effects that Xenagos loves to use when it pumps up creatures. Yeah, absolutely. This is a really, really cool option. And the gameplay patterns that I noticed from Xenagos tend to be that he really only ever attacks with like one creature at a time. He lands one big threat, pumps it up, and then smacks someone with it. So the fact that Grun the, uh, the Lonely King has to attack alone to get that double effect trigger. That doesn't seem like it's going to be too far out of left field for what the normal gameplay pattern of a Xenoghost deck is going to do. I think it's a really cool option. Okay, Matt, what's your challenge?
1: I actually have three, uh, a three-hitter for you. Uh, So, Revel and Rich's decks, I think, like we said earlier, they're very good. It's just a good value engine. It's a backup win condition. Super great. I love it. You should probably play it in a lot more decks in general. I'm going to challenge Revel and Rich's decks, though, So the three cards that I'm challenging are Plague Crafter and its Brethren. So Plague Crafter is two and a black for a 3-2 human shaman. When Plague Crafter enters the battlefield, each player sacrifices a creature or planeswalker. Each player who can't discards a card. Then you also have Fleshbag Marauder and Merciless Executioner, which just read when they enter the battlefield, each player sacrifices a creature. Well, with these, you have a chance to get, you know, three treasure tokens with Revlon Riches in play. That right there makes, basically, it's a free spell for you, it's a free sack outlet for you, and it gets rid of three threats off the battlefield. I think that these cards are being severely underplayed. Plague Crafter is only played in 25% of Revel and Rich's decks, and that's the highest. 14% are playing Fleshbag Marauder, and only 10% are playing Merciless Executioner. I think if you need a cheap way to get rid of something that scales very well with the rest of the battlefield, if you have three opponents, there's going to be three sacrifices, most likely. You're going to get three treasure tokens. I think if you need a way to kind of beef up everything, if you have Taysa in play, you get six treasure tokens. Granted, you do have to, you know, do a little finagling, but it's very, very good. I think that these types of effects in general are pretty powerful, but it doesn't seem like people are really catching on that when you have it with Revel and Riches in play, you basically get a free removal spell with it.
0: Wait, you're telling me that it's really good to make people sacrifice creatures with black spells. Are you sure that you're really Matt Morgan
1: after all? I, Aren't you
0: Mr. Selesnya? I am
1: Mr. Selesnya, but I make a rare exception when I win the game with alternate win condition cards. I do have a soft spot for that, and I was very, very impressed with how uh, Merciless Executioner did for me in my Tesa Karlov deck so I I will make a rare exception and say you should sacrifice creatures and cards and black spells.
0: I'm just saying, what kind of show is it when I pick a green red like a mono green challenge of that's and you pick like a like a, a mono black challenge of that that's just so that's so weird. Have we switched places? Are are we having a Freaky Friday situation right now?
1: Only if I get to be Lindsay Lohan. That's the only only bugaboo.
2: I was trying to remember who was in the original Freaky Friday and uh, make a reference there, but I I can't recall who it was.
1: <laughs> Dana, you're the only one that remembers there's original Freaky Friday.
0: <laughs> wow. You know now, you're not I'm, I'm fine taking I'm fine <laughs> taking the Jamie Lee Curtis role on this Freaky Friday situation. <laughs> that's, that's fine with that Unless we've got any other last minute tidbits that we'd like to share about commanders with some unintended strategical consequences. I think we'll wrap that episode up to a close, but any last minute pearls of wisdom that you guys want to drop for us?
1: I think uh, I, no. I, I dropped enough when I, I gave Dana the old, old, old joke. So uh, I'll bow <laughs> out here.
2: I, I, I will quick reiterate. Um, this stuff is just crazy difficult to test. So again, like none of this is a criticism of anybody who, who designed these cards, um, you know, just recently in standard we had that issue with in, in the Kaladesh block with the infinite uh, kitty cat combo off of Sahili. Um, you know, it, oh, right. there's there's just so many variables and permutations with these cards, it's really easy to miss one interaction in standard, let alone when you're looking at, you know, nineteen to twenty thousand cards that possibly have interactions, many of which you haven't seen in years. So it's very, very easy to have the stuff slip the cracks, and and none of this should be taken as a criticism of anyone designing these cards. No. Yeah, that's
0: a really great note to end on, I think. These what we wanted to do with the show isn't like at all to criticize these commanders. Ooh, look, they do one thing, even though they say that they should be doing another. They actually go in a completely different direction. That's not a bad thing. If anything, that gives the game more texture. That's really fun. Those are the interactions that we really like to find. It's cool to see when commanders branch out into strategies that they didn't necessarily look like they were going to. That's a really fun journey to go down, and this is a really good, you know, tool to sort of use when you're looking across the table. If someone's gotten, you know, a miss and g deck are they going to be using it for badness or might they be going into combo this is just the kind of stuff that makes you a wiser player when you start to evaluate the different pads that commanders have so with that let's call the episode to a close and let me thank my co-host so much for joining me if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us where
2: can they find you all matt
1: you can find me on the twitters at Mathemus 55 mathimus
2: 5 and dana you can find me on twitter at dana Roach, and you can hear me twice a week on my other podcast cmdr central
0: And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. Special thanks to our editor for the show, Ken Peddle, also known as Kenish Norn. You can follow him on Twitter at Loader. That's L-O-A-D-3-R. Follow EDHREC and the cast on Facebook and Twitter. And you can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com. Plus, you can find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving us a review to help other folks find the podcast as well. This cast is posted every week on our community content spotlight section on EDHREC, where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone to Commander's Brew to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by our own fan fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. That would make Colorado Midwest.
1: Yes. No? Kansas is the definitive Midwest because Smith Center is the geographic center of the continental United States.
2: Yeah. Kansas,
1: Nebraska is what kind of mostly...
2: Iowa, Missouri.
1: And yet,
0: and yet, if Kansas gets to be the midpoint of the continental United States, but the states to the right of it are the ones that are considered Midwest. Well, that's
1: because Iowa
2: is fine, but Illinois just wants to belong. One thing I think we can agree on is this is going to make great radio.